there's a note taped to the podium. I don't know if it's for me or not. So, hope I'm not breaking any rules up here. It says stay within six inches of the podium. I'm afraid to move, you know. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, looking around for little electrical shock things or something, you know. Who knows what's going to happen. Um, wow, it just kind of threw me off. We are in Matthew chapter 5. You'll want to have your uh, outline handy. And... Uh, this is one of those passages, as I got into it, I said this probably should have been two sermons, but it's not. So you're going to have to listen very quickly uh, today. So let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures. You brought us again this morning to this amazing gospel to learn about your son, Jesus. And we ask uh, this morning that you would give us the grace to understand this hard teaching and this is hard because it hits so close to home. There are few here this morning who haven't wrestled with bitterness and resentment over how we may have been mistreated. We hate being taken advantage of. We constantly battle anger and wanting revenge when we've been wronged. And quite frankly, most of us have little or no desire to obey your words in this passage. So help us to consider what it means to follow you and not ourselves. We ask that your spirit, you would open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning, to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a phrase I often heard growing up. Um, because it was the motto of Eagle's Nest Camp in Delaware, New Jersey. My father was the camp director, and I spent eight summers there. And the motto of the camp was simply this, Go the second mile. It was taken from one of the verses in our passage today, Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, which says, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. And essentially what it meant, and what I was taught, was to go above and beyond, make the extra effort, be the first to volunteer, be known as the one who gives 110%, which is impossible, though commonly said. And if you were asked to help out, then you should do more than what was asked. That was going the second mile. And we took it to heart. And although there were many uh, hard things at that camp, it did succeed in building a close-knit community. I could call any of my friends from that camp today, and its Facebook group has 165 members, so it's not a small community. And although it's been almost 40 years since I was there, I think I could ask any of them about going the second mile, and they would instantly know what I was talking about. And most of them would immediately ask, not even knowing what the specific need was, how can I help? And that's a wonderful thing. But there's a problem. And the problem is we got the meaning of the phrase wrong. When Jesus said, and if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles, he wasn't simply talking about doing more than what was asked. He was talking about demonstrating grace in the face of persecution 
and oppression. And if you don't understand that, then you really won't understand this verse. When I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary here in Washington, I take one class to go over the basic rules of Bible interpretation. And I tell my students, if you're going to preach, it would be helpful to interpret the Bible correctly. And rule number one is context is king. Context is king. You must understand the context of the passage in order to understand that passage. And so we have to ask here in the Sermon on the Mount, here where Jesus is telling us that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, that we must obey the spirit of the law and not just the letter of the law. How, to, how does knowing the context shape our understanding of what Jesus is telling here, us here at the end of Matthew chapter 5? And the context is all about persecution, enemies, and evil. Persecution, enemies, and evil. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount now for the past uh, few weeks, and we've seen Christ applying the principles of the kingdom, calling his people to true righteousness, and trying to raise the awareness of those who are caught in self-righteousness of just how demanding the law is. And throughout these passages, Jesus is contrasting his teaching with that of the Pharisees. Why? Well, first of all, the Pharisees were wrong. That's pretty easy. And so he tells you the wrong teaching of the Pharisees. Second, he gives you the right understanding of the law. And third, he applies that law to human relationships. In other words, Jesus is telling us <coughs> that you can see something of a person's heart for God or not for God by the way they live in relationship to one another. And the way people respond to the second table of the law is a reflection of how seriously they take the first table of the law. What that means is that when it comes to the Ten Commandments, how well you obey Commandments 5 through 10, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, so on and so forth. All those commandments are about loving others. Is a reflection of how well you obey commandments 1 through 4, which are all about loving God. In other words, how you relate to one another, the Lord Jesus saying, is a reflection of your relationship with the living God. And so Christ intends to do two things here. For people who are self-righteous, for people who are Pharisees, he wants them to understand how impossible it is for them to justify themselves by the keeping of the law. Because the law can't just be kept by keeping a few external rules. It extends to the heart. And we sin and break that law daily. On the other hand, he wants to show his disciples how comprehensive is this call to righteousness which has just been given to them by their Savior. And so at this point in the Sermon on the Mount, we come to another example of how the righteousness that Jesus demands exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And this example has to do with the proper response when one is personally wronged. How is a person who has the surpassing righteousness of Christ supposed to react when personally offended. 
Well, here, as before, Jesus' teaching can only be described as revolutionary. In fact, if it weren't coming from Jesus, we would dismiss it as some out-of-touch visionary who doesn't understand human nature. But the teaching is from Jesus, and Jesus knows more about human nature than anyone else. And his words are immensely important because we're constantly inundated with opposing teaching today. Retaliation is not only considered normative, but indispensable to leadership. Moreover, we all know that beneath our gentle facade is an apparently inexhaustible capacity for anger and vengeance. Now you have to understand that in these verses, Jesus mentions the one who is evil, the one who is forcing you to do something, the one who is your enemy, the one who is persecuting you. And they're doing all that because you're a follower of his. They act wicked towards you because you're a Christian. They hate you because you love Jesus. They hurt you because they have the power to oppress you. That's the context. <coughs> He's not talking about how you should react and respond to the person sitting next to you. Unless, of course, the person sitting next to you is evil and your enemy and is persecuting you. Some of you may feel that because they brought you here. But that's really not the case. Not talking about marriage squabbles. It's not talking about sibling rivalry. That stuff doesn't count. So how do we apply this hard teaching of Jesus? Well, it starts by demonstrating grace through passive love. That's the first blank there in your outline. Passive love. Starting at verse 38. You have heard it's that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So Jesus began, uh, began by presenting the traditional Old Testament teaching in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's an exact quotation from three Old Testament passages. Let me read from one of them, Leviticus 24. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. It's also found in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 19. I'm not going to read those because they're virtually the same. Now, it represents the oldest law in the world, the law of retaliation, technically known as lex talionis, lex law, talionis, retaliation. But far from being savage, it was intrinsically merciful because it limited vengeance. A typical uh, sort of primitive blood feud knew nothing of equity. A small infraction by one tribe against another, for instance, trespassing, would be answered with a beating, which would be returned by homicide, which would be countered by genocide. And Lex Talionis did away with that. He said you can only give back 
exactly what was given to you. No escalation. And so today we recognize Lex Talionis as foundational to justice. The whole system of civil, penal, international law is based on this idea of compensation and equity that has its roots in Lex Talionis. As it exists in the Bible, it was given to the judges of Israel as a basis for the adjudication of legal matters. Individuals were not permitted to use this law to settle personal disputes. Only the courts were permitted to do this. Moreover, it was not literally carried out by the Jewish legal system because correctly they saw in some cases that would result in an injustice. For example, a good tooth might be removed for a bad tooth. So they often assessed equivalent damages just as we would do in our court today. So we have this traditional Old Testament teaching regarding one's response to wrong in this principle of exact retribution. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that apart from our manipulation of it, but it brought stability and equity to human relations. But now comes Jesus' revolutionary new teaching. Verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But what does Jesus mean? The fact is, his statement, do not resist the one who is evil, cannot be interpreted as an absolute prohibition on the use of all force, such as police or court systems, unless the Bible contradicts itself, because Romans 13 teaches us clearly the state is a divine institution that has the power to punish wrongdoers. And that's impossible without force. The problem comes when we isolate Jesus' words without giving attention to the context. Jesus explains what he means. He gives us four one-sentence illustrations of what it means to not resist one who is evil. So the next four sentences are explaining what he said here, and do not resist one who is evil. And those uh, illustrations, they're culturally specific, but they give us general principles for today's living. And those principles are not for everyone, but for those who follow Christ. The first principle is forgiveness. Christ's answer to revenge. In verse 39, Jesus says, But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What is Jesus describing here? Contrary to what we think, he's not describing a random physical attack, but rather a very traditional calculated insult. And he specifically mentions the right cheek. And that's important because what he's describing is a backhanded slap where you would slap someone with your right hand hitting their right cheek with the back of your hand. And he said that because almost all people of that time were right-handed, and if they weren't, they were forced to be. And the left hand was used for personal hygiene. So according to rabbinic law, to hit someone with the back of the hand is twice as insulting as hitting them with the flat or the front of your hand. The back of the hand meant calculated contempt. It's a calculated insult. But here, it's a slap specifically given to you because of your faith in Christ. 
When Jesus spoke of being slapped, he's describing an insult that becomes uh, that comes to you because of your faith. Now, it's an insult which in the Jewish tradition, a Jew could seek legal satisfaction according to the law of lex talionis. He could seek damages. But Jesus says, don't do it. If you're dishonored as a heretic, you shouldn't go to court about that. You should show yourself to be my disciples by the way in which you bear the hatred and the insult overcoming the evil and forgiving the injustice. In short, you are to lovingly absorb the insult. And what that means for us is when we're insulted for Christ's sake, whatever form that may take, we're not to respond by getting even, by getting our legal pound of flesh according to the law. But we're to turn the other cheek, swallow our pride, give up our rights, to fairness and compensation. And that's the basic essential interpretation. But I think there's another level of application here that really gets down to where we live. And we're to set aside our petty ways of getting even. The kind of living that punishes others by returning their sin to them. Let me give you some small examples. Uh, If your spouse is messy, then you intentionally leave things messy in return. If your friend is late, then next time you're late. And in fact, Jesus is asking us and turning the other cheek to focus on the other person and their well-being. We think of them and adjust our action according to what we think will point them to Christ. And when we do this, we begin to affect them spiritually. When we don't treat them back the way that they have treated us. And Jesus teaches us how a righteous person should respond to personal wrong with forgiveness. So the first illustration shows us how to respond to a personal insult. Now the second principle is one of sacrifice. Christ's answer to self-protection. In verse 40, Jesus says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. It's possible in that day to sue others for the very shirt on their backs. That's what a tunic was. However, no one could take another's cloak for a permanent 24-hour-a-day possession. The law is very clear. We read it in Exodus 22. If you ever take your neighbor's cloak and pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body, and what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. So the cloak, or the outer robe, is indispensable for living in Palestine. So even if you lose your shirt in court, you know where that phrase comes from now, and your opponent asks for your cloak and wins it, he's required to return it to you every night for you to sleep in. That's the law. So what's the situation here? Evidently, Jesus giving advice to the poor uh, among them who would only own one cloak and uh, who have now been reduced Uh, to the garments on their backs because of persecution for their faith. And he's simply saying, as they sue you, no doubt falsely, for your shirt and win them, give them your cloak too, even though they legally can't take it. It's sacrificial. And it's meant to point your persecutors to Christ. Now we see Paul say something very similar in Romans chapter 12. He describes the same call and potential effect. 
There he says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That means you're not going to literally quit the coals. It's going to convict him of his sin. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a radical call for those who are suffering persecution for Christ. It's extreme advice for extreme circumstances. Now, we should note here, the Lord is not referring to the average lawsuit that's characteristic of a litigation-happy society like ours. Wrongly applied, this would do away with the possibility of legal remedy. It's advice for the righteous who are pushed up against the wall for the name of Christ. And we should listen well, because someday we may need it. Jesus is teaching us how a righteous person should respond to unjust treatment with sacrifice. Essentially, this second principle shows us how to respond to being ripped off. Third principle is service, which is Christ's answer to imposition, to being imposed upon. Verse 41, Jesus says, If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Now the indignities describing here is referring to Roman oppression. Didn't start with the Romans, but they kind of perfected it. Whenever a Roman official or a Roman soldier asked anyone anywhere in the empire to carry a burden, usually his military pack, uh, for a mile, that person had to do it. It was the law. Now it says a mile, technically that meant 1,000 steps. A Roman mile wasn't the same as our mile. They measured it by steps. So that person had to carry your pack for 1,000 steps, regardless of who you were, regardless of what the circumstances were. And almost all Jews had been subject to this, and they hated it, and they hated the very mention of it. And as in previous examples, this form of persecution fell upon a believer because of his identification with Christ. Some think that's why Simon of Cyrene was forced to carry Jesus' cross. The Roman soldiers knew he loved Jesus. It's assumed, Matthew 27, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled him, they compelled this man to carry his cross. They had the right to do that. And what Jesus is saying is there needs to be a willing cheerfulness on the part of his followers who come under this form of obligation, this form of being imposed upon, this form of persecution. And of course, there's two ways to do any task. You think of uh, any kind of chore that you might do. You can carry out your obligations very begrudgingly or gratefully and cheerfully. You know, you can mow the lawn with complaining or you can mow it with joy that you're outside. You can, uh, when you wash the dishes, you can water them with your tears or you can sing hymns. Jesus is calling for a revolutionary response to a difficult situation. And that's cheerful service. The kind of service that would cause this hardened soldier to say, what's with him? This person has something I neither have nor understand. Is it ridiculous? Maybe. Impractical? Sure. Immature? Possibly. But this is how Rome was won. 
because the Christians were persecuted, made to do things, and they did it with a smile, and nobody got it. Watching righteous people in possession of revolutionary joy, even when treated unfairly, serves to draw people's hearts towards the Lord. When imposed upon, the Christian is supposed to show a servant's heart. Sinclair Ferguson writes that he does the unexpected because grace makes him or her seek to win others by love rather than retaliation on the basis of rights. So Jesus teaches us how a righteous person should respond to being imposed upon with cheerful service. The third illustration shows us how to respond when we're forced to do something. The fourth principle Jesus gives us is one of generosity. Christ's answer to selfishness. Verse 42, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now we have a matter of a believer being persecuted through others borrowing. The Lord's advice is simply give. Now does this mean we're to give to every freeloader and panhandler who comes our way? I don't think so. Jesus is not recommending that his followers give to every open hand. Although he does call us in other places to a deep generosity. What then does he mean? He means the righteous are to give to those who are attempting to hurt them through borrowing and begging. Luke refers to this kind of persecution as well. In Luke chapter 6, he says, And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Jesus' advice is for a specific situation in which a believer is being taken advantage of by his enemies. Now, Jesus doesn't say how many times one is supposed to loan to his persecutors. He doesn't mention the restraint that love will impose on your generosity. The great Scottish uh, preacher Alexander McLaren wisely said, if turning the cheek would make the assaulter more angry, or if yielding the cloak would make the robber more greedy, or if going the second mile would make the press gang more severe, resistance becomes a form of love and duty for the sake of the wrongdoer. You have to understand, Jesus' advice is not a set of mechanical rules, but principles for meeting personal wrongs that come to those who follow him. That's why the context is so important here. It's about dealing with people taking advantage of you because they're enemies, they're evil, and they're persecuting you. And in this manner of money, Jesus wants his followers to reject this tight-fisted, penny-pinching attitude that says, this is mine and I'm not sharing it, and I'm especially not sharing it with you, because I don't like you. This is a dramatic new teaching. It exceeds all previous standards of righteousness. Under the law was lex talionis, exact retribution. But then Jesus comes and changes everything. We're no longer to consider it our duty to get even. The eye for an eye, tooth for tooth is fine for the court, but not for our relationships with others, and not even for our enemies. Thanks to Jesus, we have to let go of our legalistic obsession with fairness. 
I mean, after all, we're glad that Jesus wasn't fair with us. For if we got what was coming to us, it wouldn't be good. As Jesus' followers, we give ourselves to the welfare of others, even if there are enemies. We put up with the sins and insults of others for Christ's sake and for theirs. Though we may be hurt many times, we refuse to withdraw. We don't run from pain. We appear weak, but we're strong because only the most powerful can live a life like this. But the power is not ours. It is Christ. Everything comes from him. Now, granted, Jesus' sayings are hard. And in fact, you might say they're just downright impossible. And I'm glad that the Sermon on the Mount is impossible. Because once we realize that, we'll realize we have to depend on Jesus to do any of it. But it doesn't just end there. Jesus says we must not only passively love the evil person, but we must also demonstrate grace to them through active love. Starting at verse 43, active love. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that's the traditional teaching of the religious establishment as a man on the street was taught it. But the problem is that's not what the law actually says. The sole Old Testament quotation is from Leviticus 19, which says you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That phrase, and hate your enemy, is not found in the Old Testament. It was added. So why did the Israelites make that addition? Primarily because they were convinced that the law confines the definition of neighbor to fellow Israelites. Of course, Jesus is going to upset this later on with many of his parables. But the Israelites wouldn't tolerate an extension of the term neighbor to anyone else. They wouldn't consider a Philistine a neighbor or a Canaanite or a Midianite a neighbor, even though essentially they're all distant relatives. Moreover, they felt that God's direction of their historic relationship with all these other peoples, such as his command to exterminate the Canaanites, supported this idea we need to hate them. But what they failed to take into account was these and other similar commands are all judicial, not individual. Even the imprecatory psalms where the psalmist is calling down God's justice upon other people is a judicial act. It's not individual revenge. So, they had to set aside a lot of other teaching of the Old Testament. Uh, one example, and there's many, uh, about kindness to your enemy. Exodus 23, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. 
you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. So by Jesus' time, this hatred of foreigners is so institutionalized that Jews thought they were honoring God by despising anyone who wasn't Jewish. Now, it's not always true today, but it was, certainly was back in Jesus' day. The standard love in Jesus' day is a very limited love. I'll love my neighbor who's a fellow Israelite, but I'm going to hate everyone else. It's my duty. And Jesus says, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And the fact that the text mentions enemies plural suggests he means personal enemies who are doing us harm. And that's amazing. To the man on the street, the mere idea of loving your enemies is absurd and offensive and beyond your capability. It offends the natural sense of right and wrong. And to those under the law, the idea of loving one's enemies is completely contrary to their view of the law, which they thought required hating your enemies. And Jesus is now commanding a love without limits, which loves everyone regardless of what they do or say to us. So why does Jesus order us to love like this? Well, he gives us two reasons. The first we see in verse 45, it makes us like God. In other words, if you impartially show love to your enemies as well as to your friends, you'll be like God who shows the impartiality of his love by sending the sun and rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. The second reason is that it distinguishes us from the world. He gave a negative example of this in verse 46. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Nobody could miss the point of Jesus' examples. Tax collectors are basically rich crooks who are hated by everyone especially the Jews, because they're employees of the Romans. And Jesus' point is even those double-crossing tax collectors love their fellow tax-collecting buddies. And if a person loves only his friends, he's no better than some swindling tax collector. But it's so hard to do. This is a love that is just incredibly difficult. There's a great story about the well-known Southern Presbyterian minister, John Lafayette Gerardot. It's a great name. He was a POW during the Civil War. He was from South Carolina. He was captured by the Union. And after the war was over, he was released, and he returned home to South Carolina to take up his ministry, and he preached a passionate sermon on this passage, which is still available. And his youngest son heard that sermon and he asked his dad questions all the way home as they walked home. He continued to ask him annoying questions around the dinner table. Specifics about how the sermon would apply. Dad, does this mean I have to love the bully who beats me up at school? Yes, son. Dad, does this mean that we have to love people who have taken advantage of our family? Yes, son. Dad, does this mean that we have to love Yankees? Be quiet, son, and eat your dinner. <laughs> it's hard to love 
as God calls us to love. Active love just doesn't seem possible sometimes. We have to ask, is Jesus asking too much? Yep, he is. In fact, he's asking for perfect love. Perfect love. Look at verse 48. Jesus finishes this impossible passage by telling us, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not my favorite verse, because I look at it and say, oh great. And as you figure it out now, can't be done. Not in our own strength. Not in our own power. Perfection only comes by the righteousness freely given to us by Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, But he, the Lord, said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus doesn't merely tell us to be like this. He modeled it. In his last days, we read in all of the Gospels how the authorities spit on him and blindfolded him and slapped him in the face. Matthew 26, they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him. Then the Roman soldiers followed suit. They crowned him with thorns. They clothed him in imperial purple robes that once they ripped him off would open all his wounds. They invested him with a scepter of reeds and they jeered at him, hail king of the Jews. They mockingly knelt before him and spat in his face and struck him with their hands. And Jesus, with the infinite dignity of self-control and love, who embodied what we would call the fruit of the Spirit, holds his peace. He demonstrates his total refusal to retaliate by allowing them to continue their cruel mockery until they were finished. Remember when Peter cut off the guy's ear, Malchus? He whips out his sword and cuts off his ear. I always kind of liked that part, you know, because I'm just as sinful. And what did Jesus say? He says, do you not think I could call legions of angels? He doesn't do it, doesn't retaliate. And in that case, he healed and picked up the guy's ear and put it back on because you've seen that happen all the time. But obviously it had an effect on Peter because later Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And it's easy to read these verses and think, you know, this doesn't really apply to me. Nobody's trying to hurt me. I don't have any enemies, so how do I apply this? Well, maybe you don't, but we do. And by we, I mean the church, Christians, people, who love Jesus. And it would be easy to point to all the examples overseas. But let's point to one example here. Rod Dreher, conservative columnist, well known as an evangelical Christian, in a recent article 
in the past week. He responded to the last column in the Washington Post by their ombudsman. I'm not sure I said that right. Ombudsman. It's a hard word. But an ombudsman is one who takes the side of the customer, who feels that somehow he's been wronged by the institution. In this case, uh, perhaps an article in the newspaper. Now, the Washington Post has eliminated this position, which they've had for years, probably due to declining revenues. So in this last article, the ombudsman took the position of defending the paper against the customer, which is really not his job. And in this case, against a reader who opposes gay marriage. And in response, I thought this was fascinating, I went back and read very long articles, both the one in the post and in the response, but he summarizes it and says, in a nutshell, when it comes to reporting on the debate and events around the same-sex marriage issue, the Post feels it has no responsibility to report fairly and accurately on people who oppose same-sex marriage because, quote, they are morally wrong. That's what this guy said on behalf of the Post. But what really got me wasn't all the various arguments pro and con, which they go through in great detail, but how Mr. Dreher ends this long article. He ended it by writing, I love journalism. I consider it important. But when it comes to reporting on the culture war, my profession is deeply corrupt and profoundly self-righteous. The contempt with which so many within newsrooms hold social conservatives and traditional Christians is real. Stories like this one temper my sorrow over the demise of my profession. Quote, they really do hate people like me. And consider us not worthy of the basic fairness they would use in approaching their reporting on criminals and terrorists. So pretty sobering words. They can make you a little angry, can't they? But in order not to get indignant, over perhaps such nonsense. We have to remember a few things. First, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And here comes the important verse, And such were some of you. But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He says, you're just like that guy. Once upon a time. It's easy to look down, get mad, uh, argue with them. But we used to be just like them. We were once the bad guys. We were once the evil people, the persecuted and the enemies. And how did Jesus treat us? Did we get what we deserved? No, we got mercy. And grace. And so Romans 5 reminds us, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. While we were enemies, we were reconciled in God by the death of his son. Each of Jesus' examples illustrates the unexpected. 
Kingdom citizens are not to do the expected, not following the typical patterns of selfish living, but we're to do the unexpected, the forgiving, the sacrificial, the serving, the generous behavior of those whose lives have been redeemed by the blood of Christ to rise above the dark selfishness of the world, display the glory of Christ. Friends, the gospel is a very simple thing. Jesus Christ came to earth as a man. He came and has looked into your heart and he has seen a lot of things. There are things in your heart you wouldn't want anybody else in this room to know, ever. And the scary thing is he's seen a a thousand things worse than that, worse than you've ever seen. And he still loves you. And he gave himself for you. And if you receive him as your Lord and Savior, all of these things can be wiped away. We're going to come to the Lord's table. I remind you, it's his table. It's not mine. It's not the church's. It doesn't belong to the elders. I'm not Presbyterian. It is Jesus' table. And we experience the grace of God through fellowship with Jesus. At the table, we hear the words over the bread and the cup and find reconciliation. Jesus is completely convinced we're called to love all people. And he took the radical step of dying for us. We who were once his enemies. So we might not just be neighbors, but be friends and family. Sons and daughters of the living God. And he invites us to his table where we find grace and mercy to help us live the unexpected life. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you've given us a king. And in this passage, once again, we see your son. And we see how wonderful it is that you have turned us from enemies into family. How great it is to have fellowship at your table. How wonderful to have fellowship with so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But Lord, this morning, let us not be so self-absorbed that we don't reach out to others. Lord, help us to be so forgiving and so sacrificial and so serving and so generous that people wonder what's happened to us. And so, Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we'd ask by your Spirit that you would draw that person to yourself by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that they might embrace your Son. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. It was a good day to be with Jesus. Let's receive his blessing given to us through the inspired Apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Galatia. And let us not grow weary of doing good, For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. God bless you. We'll see you next week.